The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at HeftyRenew.com. The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grand is the Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grand Dr. Grand Dr. Doreen Grand Dr. Doreen Grand is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. I'm Shannon Penrod, and I'm here with Dr. Doreen Grampichet. This is part two for those of you who are watching live, uh, or just part two if you're watching us on podcast, uh, of a very special edition of Ask Dr. Doreen. Dr. Doreen Grampichet, who's a true expert in the field of autism, is here with us. She's answering your questions live, and um, you can be writing in right now. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and I'm going to have a coughing fit. But... <laughs> Before I do that, we left off with a question. <coughs> Excuse me. What about sensory processing, nonverbal autism ID, and ADHD unattentive? Any suggestions? Yeah. So I'll talk about that while you have a drink. Mute my microphone. <laughs> so, you know, all of these are a little bit different from each other and also have some similarities. So we're talking about ID, which is intellectual disability, which in the old days used to be called mental retardation, which essentially is just a kind of man-made measure of our uh, intelligence, which again has to do with how we uh, imitate the from the environment and how we learn. Uh, autism, which of course is, you know, its own thing and has, is a huge spectrum and has multiple different areas of, uh, that are affected. And uh, then we're talking about ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And very specifically, we're talking about the inattentive type. Uh, because with ADHD, you also can have, you know, other types of um, that are hyperactive type, which is also its own thing, and you can also have ADHD combined, which is inattentive and hyperactive. And so, you know, there are, it's difficult sometimes to differentiate between inattentive form of ADHD and autism. And in the past, it used to not be allowed to actually diagnose both of those things at the same time. But it is now allowed to diagnose those. And you know, the way to, I, I think it's important to look at the very specific diagnostic criteria for each one. When I look at a child who has just ADHD, even if it's an attentive type, we have, or, you know, hyperactive type <clears throat> is, is easier because you have a child who's literally climbing the walls and running around and extremely hyperactive. But when you're looking at an attentive type, the difference is that it's almost, it's actually interesting, thank you for raising it today, because I think the difference in inattentive ADHD as opposed to autism 
is, has something to do with the sensory input. And I'll talk about that a little bit because I think children who have ADHD <coughs> and attentive are kind of, you know, their language ability is pretty average. Their ability to, if they really, if you sit them down and, and instruct them to, you know, take a look at your eyes, your nose, your mouth, your whatever, they are kind of able to do it. It's just very difficult for them to do it because they get distracted by other stimuli, right? Whereas children with um, ASD, what you're seeing in the lack of attention is a little bit different. It's almost like uh, they start out with a much more severe inability to pay attention and focus. And sometimes to me, it appears like they just ha don't have the sensory ability to do that. A lot of our kids on the spectrum have a hard time focusing, let's say, on your eyes, like just look at me. And no matter how hard they try, they can't. They're looking at the air in front of you. They're not able to focus both of their eyes, which is called binocularity, on your face. They will have issues and they'll be fleeting eye contact. And that's not the same as what you see with a child who just has ADHD. It's a little bit, it's, it's quite different actually. A child with ADHD is, has a lot of other skills are intact. Their only issue is just being distracted. And uh, the, the main thing with a child with ASD is that their, their other skills are not intact. They have a really hard time paying, paying attention because they're not understanding language. Multiple sensory things in the environment will affect their ability to pay attention. And it's, it's I think, in my opinion, it's, it's a more severe disability in that sense. Well, NH wrote in and says, my five-year-old son has few physical stims. Um, he has some vocal ones, but he also often zones out, sometimes whispering and won't respond at all for a while. When we ask, he says he's thinking about X or Y, often a very special interest. Is this the equivalent of a mental stim? Yeah, and it's totally fine as long as, so this is, it's interesting, this is a great question because one of the things that our children sometimes have a hard time with is what's called set shifting. Yeah. So, and set shifting is the ability to switch a cognitive uh, process on and off or to switch from one to the other. And so I'll give you an example. Like I might just for a moment as we're doing the show even, uh, you know, my phone might light up and I'll see my daughter's name on there or something. So my brain activity will immediately go to what, is, what does Charlie need, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll, it'll just be a moment. And then I will set shift back to the questions that are coming, popping up on my yeah. iPad and I will be able to refocus myself pretty fast, right? Yeah. And I still have in the background of my head, in my mind, I need to address Charlie's needs, right? right? But it's now shifted to the background. And with our kids, you'll notice that sometimes when they're like, even when they're focused on TV, let's say, mm -hmm. and you call them, and this is not even just kids on the spectrum. This also happens a lot with teenagers and so on. And you'll call their name and they're just zoned out, right? Mm -hmm. They're just doing something else and they don't, it's almost like they don't hear you even. Yeah. And you get them to learn, right? By either by shouting at them or 
you know, they will lose an opportunity and then they'll learn whatever it is. But they or you get in their face and they're, you know, you visually just get yeah. them back. And, and over time, we learn. It's one of those things that as adults, we, we shape ourselves. We learn how to set shift rapidly. And uh, if your child was able to set shift, they would know that they can leave that thought behind and pay attention to your stimulus, whatever that might be, yeah. more rapidly. <clears throat> you can do exercises for this. So, um, I mean, you can do simple exercises, which are just, you know, have the child engaged in an activity and then have a bell go off or call their name or just practice that activity. Another really good, uh, you know, there are several tests that we do for set shifting. One of them is you just write, take a piece of paper and you write, and it depends on the child's abilities, right? And you write a... I would fail this. So well, you get better fail. at it. You get better yeah. at it. So what you do is you write <laughs> A, B, C, D, and all over the page, right? Or on, on a big board, different places. And then you also put numbers, like one, two, three, four, five, so on and so forth. You can do that, or you can do, I don't know, you know, you can do um, different types of stimuli. But that's the test, the basics test. And then what you tell the child to do is to go from A to 1 to B to 2 to 3 to C. If you understand what I'm saying is you're, you're forcing them to set shift between alphabet and numbers yeah. and progressively expand, right? And that's a hard activity, but the child gets better at it. Another type of activity that involves set shifting is where you write the name of a color, but in a different color. So, for instance, you will write blue in blue first, and then green in green, but then eventually you will write, like, blue, but using the letter, using the color green. And when you telling the, when, and then you will give the instruction to the child, read blue, or tell me the color, what it, you know, show me the yeah. color blue, or what, tell me all the, thi the things that are blue. And it's confusing in the beginning, but honestly, uh, you'll see that over time you just get really, really better at it. <laughs> and it becomes really hard when you tell someone to read. Yeah. And what they're actually seeing is a different, you know, yeah. they're see they're, they're, you're telling them to read blue. And it says B-L-U-E, but it says it in red. Yeah. And people get very, very confused with that. But over time, your brain just becomes really good at focusing on one cognitive set. Yeah. And that helps this issue. They have all those apps that are like brain games. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. that have exactly sure that have to those. work on that. And they recommend it for, for people of a certain age. Um, <laughs> you know, to help keep mental acuity and things like that. I've never been good at set, set shifting. I'm much better at it than I was when I was younger. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things in my marriage is that, you know, I said that I loved my husband and that, you know, he's amazing because my husband, like a lot of men, um, he works in the field of video games and he plays them. Mm -hmm. And I, and I said, you know, I could be married to him forever because if he could be playing a video game and I could walk in the room and say, Hey, and he immediately puts it down and, and is attentive to yeah. me, which is amazing. Most men, that is not the thing. And I always praise him for that, right? I cannot do the same. If I'm sitting and typing and he'll come and say hi and I'm typing and I, you know, oh, and he says, hi, baby. And, I, and, and finally, I'm like, 
I, can you not see that I am writing? I cannot talk to you and write at the, yeah. at the same, and I'm yeah. angry yeah. because my brain had to leave one thing to another totally. to say hello, and now I lost my train of thought. Yep. And yep. I like say, you know, I don't want to talk to you now. Yep. Leave me alone. Um, and I get angry when my brain has to shift from one side to the other when I'm entrenched in the thing. Yep. So I just want to speak up for all the kids that are like creative oh. and doing the, that and to say to the parents, have an awareness of the fact that when you're asking them to shift, we have to make it worth their while, right? hundred percent. And thank you very much for saying that because yeah, it is hard to set shift. Oh. And that's, you, you used exactly the language, which is, you made me lose my train of thought. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And so, yes, you need to make it worth their while. You need to reward always for these types of activities. These are not easy. Mental, yeah. you know, mental games, teaching your brain to become more fluid, more flexible. This is part of flexibility, by the way, yeah. training, um, is super important, but it isn't easy. It's yeah, definitely not, not easy, but possible to learn and get better. And I am better than I used to be. Uh, Jennifer's written in something really interesting. She said, my son is screen obsessed. I think a lot of people can relate to that, right? He plays things over and over and likes to choreograph two devices. Uh, um, I, I'm not sure this part, but she says his aggression comes out with removal. Mm -hmm. I think we can all relate to that too, that he lacks fine motor, so computer stuff he can't grasp. So I think we're really talking about like iPads, I think, um, and that he is someone who, who refuses to leave home and has been diagnosed with social anxiety. Now, we don't have an age, Jennifer. If you want to write in and tell us how old um, he is, that might be useful. But let's talk about this, Jennifer, because there's two different issues here, and they're both important. Yeah. So we start with he has a tantrum. He has aggression when you take the device away. And I know this is scary, and as Shannon said, depending on his age, it's probably even more scary if he's older. Yeah. But you must work towards uh, actually removing this object. And, you know, the, the second part of your question kind of says why you must. Because his world will narrow and be focused only on the device if you allow it. Already, I'm concerned that he's not leaving the house. And we can talk about that in a minute separately. But I do want to say that whenever there is a behavior that you, you know, the child uh, has a tantrum or aggression or anything like that because you're, you're taking away a device, essentially he has trained you to not take away the device because you will be punished by his aggression if you do. So he's taught you to leave him alone, which is not okay because society will not allow him as he ages to just spend all of his life on a device. So you should get help. You should get people, um, yeah. whether they are, you know, hopefully you can find someone who is a board-certified behavior analyst who's able to come in and help you. What they will do is a functional behavior assessment, which essentially says they will do a bunch of experiments and ask you a lot of questions, and they will come to the conclusion that he is uh, tantruming or having aggressive behavior because he wants to 
avoid giving up his object, which is the device, right? And so, and that is not okay. And they will teach you techniques such as, for instance, taking away the object, allowing him to have his tantrum while there is enough support that you can contain the aggression. That's why I want you to have support first. Because often when we don't reward what you're doing when you give it back, because you know he tantrums, aggresses, and you give him back the device, is he's being rewarded for the aggression. He's in his system, he's realizing, wow, that really worked. I aggressed, they gave me back the tantra the yeah. object I wanted. This is great. From Women. now on, I went. From now on, what I'm gonna do is whenever they take something away that I don't want them to take away, I will hit yep. and I'll get it back. That's it it just has happened. This is there's no blame in this. I'm not blaming you in any way. This is just has happened over time. And it happens frequently with our kids. The issue is now we have to teach him the opposite of that, which is that if you aggress, you're not getting back this object. But if you ask nicely, you might get it back depending on what time of the day it is or how much you've already had it. So essentially the way that it works is that it starts with taking the object away and allowing the individual to have a massive aggressive uh, or tantrum fits without aggressing. That's why you need multiple people there to protect and to make sure that you are safe, he is safe. The aggression will increase, that's called an extinction burst, and it will decrease because he will realize this is not effective anymore. And once he realizes that, you can actually have him come and say, I'm calm, I want the device again, and then you can allow it for a short period of time. It's all about being fair, so it's really all about moderating and making sure that our kids have the things that are meaningful <clears throat> to them, but not when it interferes with the rest of their lives. Uh, you know, my kids and Shannon's kid, I don't know if he still does, but my child still, who is 23 years old now, still loves to play games on a computer video games, but he will do it literally like from, you know, 10 to 11 o'clock at night, and that's it. Right? It doesn't interfere with his day. There's no way he would be doing that during the day. It's just his recreational activity, and he gives it a specific amount of time. If he was doing it during the day, I would be on his case yeah. because he wouldn't be going to work or school or all the other things that he has to do would, or leaving the house, right? I mean, he, uh, these things can become so dominating that we will do nothing else but this. That's when it becomes an addiction. It's like everything else that we do beyond control, and it needs to be controlled. So, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that I think um, in our case, one of the things that I've discovered is if nothing else is going on, my kid, you know, Can do it, if he has right. two weeks off, he will spend the entire two weeks doing the computer unless somebody interrupts that for him and offers him, him something that is equally or more exciting. Yes, of course. And, and that that's really been the trip. And I can remember when he was younger and we were really addicted to the iPad that, you know, sometimes it took like a day of going to Disneyland because we live close to Disneyland where we say, oh, we're going to Disneyland. Yes. And um, oopsie, we forgot to bring the iPad in the car. So you're just going to have to sing and do other things in the car on the way down. And he knew that he was going to Disneyland, so he got through it. I think, you know... Um, 
I want, I, you know, I'm on his case all the time about it, but I want to say that for me, the being on his case doesn't work. It's, but when he has other things that are more exciting. Now, for somebody who's already saying, I, I don't want to go home because I have um, social anxiety, and I've, I've admitted before on the show that I had a bout with agoraphobia and had to be treated in cognitive behavioral ther- therapy to be able to leave the house again. I couldn't, couldn't leave home, you know, for a period of time. And um, the only time I would leave was to come to clinic mm-hmm. um, because I had to. Yes. Because my child's well-being was dependent upon that, right? Right. Um, But, you know, I think that uh, having gone through the cognitive behavioral for it, it's all about, you know, what do you want? And being, you know, you've talked before about Mm -hmm. systematic desensitization. Yes. And they helped me to work through a process um, to be able to go out the house, you know, and be 10 feet outside the house and then be, you know, in the yep. car and go someplace. But it really was tied to things that I wanted to do or felt like I needed to do because as, uh, you know, as a parent. And this sort of dovetails into that uh, a parent has written in and said that their son's sensory issues is around the happy birthday song mm-hmm. and that they don't know why that's the case, but it, when they're in a res- restaurant and if somebody starts singing it in a restaurant, he will repeatedly say, damn it, and say no, 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 no every time and that uh, that please help with that. But it's kind of, uh, you know, uh, they're both very different. One, I don't want to go outside of the house and the other when this thing happens but I would assume that cognitive behavioral therapy would be a path for both of those things, yes? Uh, yeah, or just behavioral therapy depending on the age there and functioning go. of the child. So, you know, and and they could have been, those two things could be related or not. In other These words, are two different kids, by the way. Absolutely. Yeah. But, like, for instance, the whole concept of, uh, you know, social anxiety. Let's talk about social anxiety for a minute. Um, but the concept of social anxiety could have been initiated by a sensory overload. Yeah. So, like, we, you, you become socially anxious for many different reasons, many, many different reasons. And sometimes I have children who have autism, and they have also been given a diagnosis of social anxiety. And I usually am not necessarily in agreement with that. It depends. Sometimes I am. I have had adults who have both diagnoses for sure. But the issue is that with autism, it is so, it is pervasive, it's it's pervasive and it's broader than social anxiety. Social anxiety is kind of a pretty, um, I want to say nuanced type of diagnosis you get social anxiety because it has to do with anxiety around people because somehow you feel that those people are judging you in a way that will make you feel worse about yourself. Social anxiety is very connected to performance anxiety. It has to do with, I think I'm going to fail and be judged by society. Now, just think about what I just said, and that's a very high-level thing. Right. right? It's an extremely high-level thing to be able to think in second- or third-level theory of mind. I am worried about what other people will think about me. That's a, that's that's a an lot. intense uh, perspective-taking yeah. skill. A lot of our kids don't have that level of perspective-taking. They just have not yet developed it. And you know this because... 
at an earlier age, sometimes they don't have embarrassment about certain things. So to say that they have social anxiety is not necessarily the case. Now, they may have anxiety about environmental stimuli. For instance, the sound of human voices, the sound of a buzzer, the sound of an elevator, the sound of streetcars. And that is set absolutely, I've seen that a hundred times with my kids, where like there's something in the environment that doesn't bother us, so we don't even recognize it. And it is extremely excruciatingly painful for the child. And therefore, he starts to self-isolate and not want to deal with that, right? In, in this particular child where we're talking about he stays at home all the time, he doesn't want to leave, I mean, part of that is because home is where the device is, yeah. right? And yeah. it's comfortable and he sits there and so on. And I guarantee you when you go out, he gets less of the device and probably a little bit more of stuff that is this uncomfortable for him. And unpredictable. And unpredictable and unpredictable, absolutely. But whatever the cause may be, and it could be cognitive behavior therapy exercises, it could be just behavioral exercises like systematic desensitization where you gradually shape your own behavior or the child's behavior by uh, progressive more, uh, you know, progressively getting the child acclimated to those situations that are more, that are harmful or difficult for the child. So, you know, let's just step outside for two seconds and great, we're going to reward you and bring you back in or let's do it now for five seconds and let's do it now for 30 seconds and so on and so forth. Or it could be with systematic desensitization, you go outside and then you pair that with relaxation or thoughts of things that are calming so that you gradually can tolerate more and more of the thing that is bothering you, whatever it may be, a phobia or a sound or a social anxiety, whatever it may be. But it is important to deal with it is what I'm trying to say. I have I cannot tell you the number of people that I have met who had agoraphobia, which is really the anxiety of going outside your home. Yeah. And it's debilitating. Oh, yeah. It is, you, it's, it's not a good life. You do not want that life because your anxieties become higher and higher. The more you spend time in the home, it just, it, it's, a, it's a really bad cycle. And you start to just feel more and more anxious. And then gradually you develop obsessive compulsive behaviors in the home. And it just becomes debilitating. So, you know, wherever you are, if you're not able to be a part of society, you need ways to start practicing that so that you can get there. But it's, I think, you know, having something worthwhile, really worthwhile to leave the house. It's all about reward and reinforcers. And in terms of, and in terms of the happy birthday, I I do want to, um, acknowledged that they uh, said that the dad, who is now deceased, would spank the individual for saying the no, no, no around uh, the birthday song being written, uh, being played in a restaurant. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I, 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 you know, I I do want to say that, um, you know, I think most people are trying to do the best that they can, but there's been a great deal of stuff that's been misunderstood over the years. Yes. And, and that when, in my era, if somebody behaved in a way that was not what was expected, 
we got spanked. Um, in my family, we got spanked. I, you know, I love the phrase that Maya Angelou always would say is that when we knew better, we did better, mm -hmm. right? And I hope that people that are watching this show acknowledge that now we know that when somebody is having a sensory reaction to something that we would not do any kind of a thing that would be add on to the stress of that. Yes. But if somebody didn't know that at a time and a place, oh yeah. Then you know, I think I think that's sad and that's unfortunate for that individual because they have to deal with the the repercussions of that, knowing that they were hit as a result of that. And I would rather focus my attention on helping that individual than the recriminations of the yeah. person in the past. Because I'm sure that they meant well. Yep. I got spanked, and I know that my mother loved me and my dad loved me, but that was what they thought yeah, was acceptable. Yep. Um, yep. And it wasn't helpful yep. uh, when I got spanked. But spanking someone for having a reaction to a sensory thing, I believe, is not helpful. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, <clears throat> spanking in general is, is not a good solution. Right. And we know this now. And we know that when you do any kind of punitive type of behavior, it's very, it doesn't really have an effect for a long term. It just in, in, instead it produces this type of traumatic yes. uh, result. Now, it is possible that you know, it, again, it goes back to kind of not knowing. You know how a lot of children, when they're very young, you take them to the mall and they will go and you want to take, you're trying to do something very good and you take them to Santa, right? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. And they will scream and cry <laughs> and they're terrified. And you have no idea why. And you, you wonder, is it the look of this old man? Is it the, just the fact that they're sitting on the lap of a creepy old guy they don't know? Is it his beard? Is it the sound? Is it the The smell? Sometimes the, the costume smell? doesn't is smell it, good. What is it? But it is terrifying for the child, yeah. right? Now, you don't, we don't force our kids. We just keep taking them back. And eventually our kids look around and they see other kids. That's a very big part of it. Mm -hmm. And they realize, oh, this is supposed to be something fun. It's still scary. Yeah. But what, when our child finally realizes that the, t the toy I tell this guy is what I'm going to get, <laughs> then it becomes a fun thing. Right. And they overcome it, right? And so it's interesting that we replace that fear with that reinforcer, which is like this, mm -hmm. this scary dude is actually a means for me to get the thing I want, right? right? But so with, with the individual who might be afraid of happy birthday song, let's say, it's really important to look back and say, and by the way, I want to say a lot of times our kids as adults can actually explain to us right. what is causing that trauma. They can go back and tell you what is the fearful stimulus in there. And it's and this individual is 25 now. And, and if this individual can talk about it, I would just ask and say, what is it that's causing you? And I would give the individual, and this is really key, I think, you know, with individuals on the spectrum, when you get to a point where you are functioning very well in society and you are there are certain things that bother you then you can decide as well and you can take control over the situation and as shannon said earlier she said i had developed this fear of leaving my house and i would only come to the clinic when i had to and then i forced myself gradually 
with the help of cognitive behavior therapy and I got over it. Okay. And that, what's the difference there? The difference is she made a conscious decision to get help and to improve upon a thing that was causing some level of disability for her. And she did it. Okay. We do this in our own lives all the time, you guys. We do diets. We make a decision that I want to lose a certain amount of weight. And then we adhere to very strict rules about it. We do exercise. I, we make a conscious decision that we want to improve a certain portion of our lives. I want to remind myself how to be fluent in French again. I force myself to take classes, etc. Right? Right. So this individual, if they are able to, can talk about what it was, what caused it, this this trauma to begin with, and they can take control. And the reason I want to talk about this is that a lot of times, control. Having control is the issue. When someone suddenly bursts out and starts singing behind you, that you don't have control over that. That in itself could be the traumatic event. Yeah. So ask the individual, is it the sound that's bothering you? Is it the fire? Is it the fact that everybody loudly claps? Is it, are you afraid of what will happen with the cake? Is it, what is, is it, what is it about? Is it perhaps the fact that you have no control over this loud thing? What mm -hmm. is it? And then let's help you cope with that because we don't always have control, yeah. right? And sometimes we need to be able to just do other things that help us cope with it. Yeah. What do you think about, because we've had people on before talking about uh, recording noises. Like I exactly. remember there was a kiddo who. We used to do this all the time. Right. Like, record the, no the sound. Yeah. And then give the individual the ability to play it and get yes. acclimated to it. 100%. That's one yeah. way to go. But it depends, again, like what is the stimulus right. that is causing. And, and particularly with an individual who can probably quite, articulate. quite yeah. elaborately articulate, it would be very interesting to know. Absolutely. I love that. Anita says, hi, doctor. I'm uh, Anita, um, and they are a, a speech and language pathologist. So I, or no, excuse me, special ed. How can I help a three and a half year old to ask for help um, for the washroom in the classroom because the student soils often during the activity? So how would you teach them to uh, ask for help? So it's interesting because when I read the question, how do I teach someone to ask for help? It's a, it's a, in my mind, it's an immediate different path than asking to go to the bathroom. Mm. There, to me, there's two paths, and I'll explain a little bit more. Asking to go to the bathroom, I would start with a schedule. This child needs to be on a schedule and therefore taken to the bathroom on a schedule, and you have to identify the baseline of the schedule because you have to time and write a diary on when they soil themselves. It's either after a certain meal, after a certain period of time, after a certain activity, whatever it might be. But once you have done that for a few days, you'll be able to identify a baseline, which essentially means, oh, they need to go every hour, every two hours, every 30 minutes, every 15 minutes. It depends on the child and the age and the you know, time of day and all of that sort of stuff. Once you've established that, I would start to take the child to the washroom on that schedule at the baseline. But before going, you will have the child say, bathroom. Just have them uh, imitate 
bathroom or some word that is appropriate, washroom. Oh, did they say washroom? Canadian. Yes. I love that. <laughs> I know that because my husband is Canadian. Oh, funny. So, um, so you will basically then say washroom and then you will take the child and now you will gradually try very, very slowly, try to increase that period of time. So if it's 15 minutes, you'll try for 20. You want to go slowly because if you get, if you, if the child has an accident, you need to back up again, right? And over time, as you get close to the child and it's that time to go, you can just go like this. You could prompt it with a visual. We actually have a lot of times what we do is we'll have a sign on the, on the child's table and we'll point to it, the child will say washroom and then you'll go and gradually you'll, the child will realize that saying washroom precedes going and then they will have, uh, they will void and then you will really reward it because that's very important too is that when they go and they go to the bathroom, you reward it heavily, right? And you keep them on a schedule like that. Now, asking for help, I would teach a little bit differently. I would actually, the way that we start that, because you can ask for help for a multitude of things, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the ways that we start that is to have like a jar that is very, very difficult to open, like a pill box that is childproof. Mm -hmm. And you have things in there that the child wants, for mm -hmm. instance. There are child, uh, big jars that are meant for this. Mm -hmm. And the child can't open it. And then you will sit with the child and prompt them to give it to you and say, help. And then you will open mm -hmm. it for the child. And then the child realizes, whoa, this is a very powerful word. <laughs> when I say help, they come to my rescue. They give me this item that I wanted there's so many other things that you, a child might need help for. For instance, uh, you know, an object that is out of reach. Uh, or yeah, there's so many different things. And then that label of help will be something that you can prompt the child to say every time for those different scenarios. But there's going to be a lot of them. And also remember, you can always use visual stimuli. Like, for instance, a board that has the word help on it, right? But, I mean... Using a picture exchange system is very helpful when you have words that have multiple use, like help. So. I want to get to Suyan's question because they've written in many times. Uh, hi, I'm Suyan. My three-year-old son has severe had severe vocal stimming, did it every five minutes, and it suddenly disappeared. Mm. After two months of severe vocal stimming, his pronunciation was getting so bad. Do vocal stimming, is it related to language skills? Can, could I explain my son's vocal stimming as the regression? Do you have any ideas why it uh, uh, disappeared suddenly? And thank you. My first question is, did other language skills go away when, when they stopped vocal stimming? Or did other language skills increase? Exactly. And my other question is, have you had his hearing checked? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times vocal stimming is something that we do in order to hear it. And so I would want to make sure he doesn't have an ear infection or something else with his hearing. But it's very unusual to, for vocal stimming to suddenly disappear and not be replaced or uh, as Shannon said, for it not to be a full regression of other mm -hmm. skills. So, Suyan, can you write in and tell us uh, the answer to those questions? Uh, while we're waiting, Dozer has said, my son has been licking the bottom of his feet and his arms. He has severe oral aversion and does not eat by mouth, so I'm not sure what to do. Yeah, so I would really, this is, so feeding 
therapy is a big, big part of what we do in ABA. And there are people who are specific feeding specialists. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really, really important for a million different reasons. Also, it'll affect language if you don't fix this. So I would suggest that you try to find someone who's a feeding specialist and really start to work on... I mean, a speech therapist, by the way, a lot of speech paths have this expertise as well. But you need to start teaching your child that licking of hands and feet is not allowed, but licking of other objects, for instance, a lollipop, is allowed. And with that, once you start replacing it with appropriate licking, um, then you will work on feeding, which will increase the items that he eats. Um, and you will also be working on movement of the tongue so that it will start to influence the vocalizations that he is able to make, and that will eventually lead to speech. So it is super important that he uses his tongue for appropriate activities. I would also start using a vibrating toothbrush, anything that can allow him to activate inside the mouth uh, so that he actually will have less of an oral aversion. And, uh, you know, the, the licking of things is exploratory. If you think of babies, they put everything in their mouth, right? They're exploring. I don't want him to get used to exploring the wrong things. But I, so you need to stop the foot and the mouth, the hand, mm -hmm. but you need to give him other things that he can start to lick, like his toothbrush, his, you know, uh, a lollipop. And, and you also need to give him other things that he can do with his mouth, such as blowing and putting his tongue out and moving it around and those types of things, because that will increase his food intake and it will increase his speech. There we go. Uh, want to say, oh, and by the way, I met a great, uh, feeding specialist when I was just in Seattle, uh, that I'm going to have on the show in the coming weeks. And if you would like to be connected before that, you can write directly to me, Shannon at autism live.com. Um, love to have a, another feeding specialist, uh, in my, in my Rolodex. Uh, Matt has written in and said, how may I help a teenage boy increase his voice volume? If he is sensitive to loud noises, thank you. I, I just was at a thing recently, and I have to be careful what I say. But um, there's a whole episode on Seinfeld about low talkers, oh, about yeah. people who just, you know, when they talk, they talk. And I was at a thing, and there was somebody that I really wanted to hear what they were saying. And every time I would ask them a question, they would, and I would say, I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit deaf. Can you speak up? And I never heard a single word wow. that they said. Oh. And, I, and I was mortified because, like, when they would contribute to the conversation, I would just kind of look around at other people like, are you hearing because I'm not yeah. here. Um, and, you know, and, and we, we, we seem to have this on the spectrum. Uh, you know, sometimes our kids are talking too loud and sometimes they're talking too soft. I just wanted to point out that it's not just people on the spectrum. There's a whole episode of Seinfeld oh, about yeah. this. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's very funny. Uh, so what do you recommend? So, first of all, it, the fact that he's sensitive to noises doesn't necessarily mean that he's sensitive to the sound of language. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't classify it together. What I would do is I would do some of the exercises that Shannon was referring to earlier, record him when he is talking and then have him, you know, show him on the recorder how you can make it louder, softer, etc. 
then I actually tell him, like, can you try to do it louder so that we can hear it? Like, one of the things we do for loud is, uh, you know, you're in the other room and you'll ask a question and the child has to respond and you'll just be saying, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, and he will respond. Now, if he is extremely sensitive to uh, the sound of his own voice, then that is an issue. And, you know, he will just be a more soft-spoken person. But I think it's important. The message that you're trying to get across is that if he has things he wants and you will, you know, be in his presence and he'll ask for something and you'll give it to him because you heard it. But if he wants an item and you're in the other room and you can't hear it, he won't get the item. And that will give him the message that he must be louder. Mm. For instance, he may also want to go outside and you won't hear it. So you need to be pretending that you don't hear his requests. And you can either say, oh, I couldn't hear that, just like Shannon said, or you can just do a sim sign, but he will learn how to increase his sound, his voice, because he needs or wants that object. That's kind of an, you know, with manding, it's, it's an internal, it's a built-in reinforcer, right? You're requesting something. Uh, Marianne wants to know, does hug therapy help with kids with ADD and ODD help regulate their emotions when they're frustrated and angry? Oh, this is a tough one. So, you know, hugging a child, uh, there is, there's something to be said for the sensory input that the child receives but it is extremely dangerous when you hug a child who has, let's say, oppositional defiant disorder, ODD, because what you will be doing is very likely hugging them, which is usually classified as a reinforcer, mm -hmm. uh, when they do something bad. I mean, it's just that simple. So when an individual has any kind of challenging behavior, Hugging them is probably not the right thing to do at that moment. Because it will just in increase them wanting to do that more often. They'll learn, oh, if I throw things, I get a hug, and I want a hug, so I'm going to throw things. Depending and we don't... on whether or not the hug is pleasant for them. Okay. Exactly. Got it. So if the An child... An important point. If the child... I mean, reinforcers in ABA are defined not as whether or not they're pleasant, but they're defined as whether or not they increase the behavior that just preceded them. Because something might be very reinforcing to me, like a hug, but might be aversive to you, True. which is you don't like being hugged. So just be careful because when you do anything that is reinforcing, you're going to increase the behavior. So if a child finds hugging pleasant, and they are, are challenging behavior like hitting, and you hug them, then the challenging behavior will increase. If they have, I, I don't know how ADHD would interact with, with hugging, uh, but again, the, those are the principles that are important, is just making sure that you're not reinforcing certain behaviors. Now, on the other hand, Separately, there are kids who ha are very sensory, um, I guess, fragile, or, you know, they have a very hard time with contact, and gradually acclimating them to contact is helpful because there will be a lot of things in, in their lives that they might be uncomfortable with. For instance, I've had children who 
Okay, now as I keep talking, I think of other things to say. So I've had children who, for instance, would not even put long sleeves on because they don't like the sensory feel of that. So it's important to shape the child to the point where they are able to tolerate touch, right, or a loose hug. On the other hand, there are people who really re in incredibly calm down when you do give them pressure, as in a hug, which, you know, talks about, like, Temple's squeeze machine. Yeah. I have children who become incredibly calm after a period of having experienced some form of pressure. Uh, it just calms them. It sensory regulates them. Yeah. So those are all the things to consider. And it is possible that if a child is extremely hyperactive, yes, then if you give them some level of pressure for a period of time, it's possible not always the case. It is possible that the child might downregulate a little bit. But you would do that more as an antecedent than a consequence, I right? I would do it more, yes. I would do it more as on a schedule. Yeah, they call it a sensory diet. Exactly. And they exactly. used to wrap Jem like a burrito and squish him, and then he would be more attentive during the next lesson. Exactly. He was more regulated. But it was, it was actually, always yeah. before the fact, before he fell apart. That's right. That's okay. right. Very important. All right. Um, uh, oh, where did I leave off? Uh, I had a, a really important question. Where did it go? Where did it go? Um, no. It was right I, here. I see one about potty The potty train. train. That's exactly the one okay. I wanted. It just it skipped. So Christina had said, my son uh, is potty trained, both things, however, unable to wipe himself. How do we approach this? So this is, again, one of those situations where it's better to teach this, this particular behavior when you're not doing the potty training. So you can use a doll where, that you can wipe. You can just practice the activity of wiping things, right? Have you seen the, the really viral video right now of the teacher in a kindergarten classroom? No. And she's sitting in a little chair, and uh, to, to the back of the chair are tied two little balloons. Okay. And she's sitting with her, her, her back to the kindergartners, and she takes a piece of toilet paper. I love and it. she holds it up to the kids, and she reaches between the, the two balloons. balloons. And she wipes, and she pulls the paper up, but they're trying to teach them to save paper. So then oh. she folds the paper. Okay. And then she wipes again. Yes. And takes and folds the paper and puts it in the toilet. Fantastic. And it just makes me scream with laughter every but time. She's a, very I, deliberate about that. It is. That. It I is. Love I love it. it. I love it. So there you go. You have your answer right there. Uh, you know, <clears throat> practice with a toy, I would say, with a doll or something. And then also, this is a great activity because two balloons will just kind of be exactly where you want to wipe, you know, and teaching the child. Teach it outside of the potty training. Yeah. And, you, and make sure to pair it with the word wipe so that they have an instruction. There you go. Love Absolutely that. love it. Great teacher. Uh, there we go. Uh, Suyan wrote back in and said the vocal stimming was decreased, but the visual stimming has been slightly increased. And thank you for any ideas. But Suyan, we still don't know. Did they lose other words or gain other words after the stimming? I think that's the question we wanted, right? Yeah. And also decreasing vocal stimming, decreasing is is okay. Disappearing completely, I've, I've never had. Okay. Um, somebody has written in and said, my son has delayed echolalia and kept saying script like drill training. Um, yeah, delayed echolalia is, is when you hear something, usually like on a TV or something like that, and then you repeat it later. 
And honestly, echolalia of any type is not a bad thing. I mean, we often fear echolalia, but the truth is that echolalia is kind of, uh, you know, is imitating speech. And I don't have a problem with it. Delayed echolalia can be difficult, but it is often the child trying to interact, but they're just not introducing the interaction appropriately. So they're just kind of repeating something they saw on TV as opposed to saying, you know, on TV, on this show, so-and-so did this, and then the rest makes sense. So uh, depending on what the issue is here, maybe you can just allow the delayed echolalia, but have your child introduce it. And, and say what it is before they repeat. Okay, now do, I'm going to cough, so I'm going to have No, no, do it, do it, do it. Um, Dozer's <laughs> written in a lot more information about what is going on with the uh, oral aversion and the feeding issues because there Great. were medical Great. issues, uh, uh, extreme preemie, uh, and yes. doesn't really understand hunger because he was being fed through a tube. Yes. And they've also had some people who weren't real helpful, helpful and maybe, maybe there was some misdiagnosis going on, um, and they're still concerned about gaining Oh, weight yeah. and he's seven years old and that they tried the vibrating tool but that really is what brought on the severe oral aversion yeah but i'm thinking and tell us dr grand pichet i just had like incredible deja vu too i'm thinking that uh working with a different feeding specialist yes. at this point is yes, really the, for sure. one who's and a behaviorist absolutely and those are you are right in that so uh, again going two things one is the vibrating tool might have been too overwhelming for your child at that time. And perhaps you need to start with something that is a little bit less overwhelming and give the child a little bit of control. So for instance, putting one of those things on your fingers that is like a you know, br toothbrush for, for babies, allowing him to play with it a little bit, getting gradually familiar with it, or a lollipop, which is sweet and rewarding to begin with in, before you go to the uh, vibrating tool. The second thing I want to say is you're probably right. When a child is getting fed through a tube, through a G-tube, yeah. they're not hungry, and so they're, they're satiated. So they're less likely to want to do any of this type of thing because they're not hungry. But so, it's, it seems like it's almost, you know, his oral seeking that he's licking himself almost... You know, because that's a natural progression yes. of development. Yes. And and so it's inappropriate at this age, but he's sort of right on schedule for he's, him. He's beginning to explore, yeah. which is a good thing. And as I said, all infants will explore the world by putting things around their mouth and in their mouth. And so he is beginning to explore. Now you need to make sure that he starts to explore things that are okay to explore. Yeah. And Dozer, if you want that, because uh, uh, the the feeding expert that I met uh, last weekend is also a board certified behavior analyst, so they're going to understand that piece of it too. If you want to be connected to them, uh, write to me, Shannon at autism-live.com. Uh, Marianne says, I have a four-year-old son that has ADHD, ODD, and autism and having issues with him at school with hitting, pinching, and running away. I'm a single parent. I'm trying to find uh, different things to help. What can I do Ugh. since he is on hold with ABA for six months? Because I'm guessing you're in Texas. Uh, because Texas has a grant where they put people on for six months and take them off for six months. Because apparently, you know, they've decided to rewrite science 
and say that that's effective. I just want to say it's not. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if that's the case or you just have not been able to find ABA or you're on a wait list or something, whatever it is. You know, these are issues that where you do need help. And I would, I would say that the scariest one, like what I would do immediately is make sure that you have a GPS device on him because running away is not one to mess with. Yeah. That's like one of the ones that I fear a lot. I would make sure that you spend a little bit of time really focusing on safety and make sure that he's safe in the around the house, cannot run out. Safe in the school, because so many times in schools, there's no attention given to the fact that the child might be running away. Um, and then I would, I would educate myself when I'm waiting for ABA. I would really start to learn more about challenging behavior and, you know, when our kids hit the function of behavior. That's where you want to really focus on. And I believe if you look online and you look for lessons in ABA, you will find a lot of different online uh, uh, resources. IBT or Institute for Behavioral Training is one of them, but I'm pretty sure there's a lot of resources out there. And these are short video, very short modules, like seven minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, and so on. And they teach you why someone might hit, why they might do aggressive behaviors. And they also teach you how to handle that depending on the why. The reason helps us identify the intervention that we're supposed to do. Yes. So that's what, how I would spend the time, honestly. There you go. Um, and so many people are writing in and saying thank you so much. Time. No, we don't. We don't have more time. We, uh, we went a little over with the last one, so I'm just going to go over a minute here. Sure. But I do want to say, I think that's all the time we have for the questions, and we almost got through all of them. Yeah. So I apologize. Right. And we had others that were written in. Uh, there's never enough time. But um, I, I do want to say thank you to all of you for being here. And, you know, we're going to be back live tomorrow uh, with a great show that I, I know you guys will thoroughly enjoy. Um, but I also want to take a moment to say a couple of things. First of all, if you haven't already, please follow us on, uh, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, and that way you can hear important information about what's upcoming. Like in the future, we might do more of these two-hour shows, and you'd want to know about that. And that's a great way that you can be up on what's happening. I uh, also want to tell you that you should be following Dr. Grampichet on TikTok and on Instagram. And that's a great way to get your questions answered. Um, you know, Dr. Grampichet is going to step away from the studio for just a few days, not for very long. She'll be back well in time before Thanksgiving. But if you're missing her live during that time, check her out on TikTok and check her out on Instagram. Um, also, yes. just for our viewers to know, I'm actually, the reason I'm not here is because I'm going to the Middle East and trying to help some folks open up schools and clinics out in Saudi Arabia. Which is really amazing. It's wonderful. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Uh, can I just say, and I'm going to get emotional, what a privilege it's been to sit here with you for two hours. Thank like an you. hour is amazing, but to watch you listen and, and listen to you and watch you and see your knowledge on display is just You're breathtaking. Too You're too no, it's Thank the truth. You. It's the truth. Just accept it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, but I also want to thank all of you for being here and sticking with us 
through these two hours. And uh, for those of you who are watching later in podcasts, we're sticking with to see this. And we hope that you'll come back for more and more. We're not going anywhere. Uh, and I hope that you all have a lovely rest of your day. We'll be back tomorrow live. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>